Cuomo won't quit and Trump won't go away. Won't you be my neighbor on The Political Junkie? You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you and me to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 361 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. This week's show is about a topic we keep coming back to more and more often, hypocrisy. Andrew Cuomo has found himself in a position that one would have thought the Me Too movement would have taught him to know better. You know, the, oh wow, I had no idea my inappropriate comments or unwanted kiss would make you uncomfortable, I was just being playful, and I apologize if you took it the wrong way, position. Three women have come forward with these kind of complaints, and the New York State Attorney General has begun an investigation. Already, several in the governor's own party have called for his resignation, and so have some Republicans. At the same time, Madison Cawthorn is heralded as a Republican rising star, with speaking spots at both last summer's National Convention and last week's CPAC event. This is despite the fact that 150 women came forward during the campaign last fall to say Cawthorn had sexually harassed them. He has denied everything. For the record, the North Carolina Republican Party recently censured its U.S. Senator, Richard Burr, for voting to convict Donald Trump during the Senate impeachment trial earlier this year. But concern about the allegations directed at Cawthon? Not a one. A few days ago, when a big story about Cawthon's past broke in the Washington Post, Fox News had the congressman on the air to talk about Rush Limbaugh and CPAC. When I was talking to a friend about this disparity between how Democrats see sexual harassment and how Republicans see it, she suggested I was missing the point. Sexual misconduct is wrong, and it doesn't matter which party does it, I was told. Of course that's true. My point is not to assemble a scorecard and see what party responds more forcefully or more correctly. But it seems clear that one party takes such allegations much more seriously than the other. As Al Franken, the Minnesota Democratic senator who was forced out of his job in 2017 following the complaints of several women, memorably said, I, of all people, am aware that there is some irony in the fact that I am leaving while a man who has bragged on tape about his history of sexual assault sits in the Oval Office and a man who has repeatedly preyed on young girls' campaigns for the Senate with the, with the full support of his party. That's not how it works, of course. The allegations against Franken had nothing to do with what Donald Trump was accused of, what Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore was accused of. Just because Republicans don't seem to be upset by the actions committed by their politicians doesn't excuse Democratic misbehavior. Franken, of course, was not suggesting that or asking for special treatment. It's just interesting to see how differently the two parties react to sexual misbehavior. Okay, onward and upward. Wasn't me, baby. No, wasn't me, baby. It must have been some other body. Uh Uh-uh, baby, wasn't me. It was cold, tired, and hungry, came up begging for bread. The lady took him in and fed him breakfast in bed. It wasn't me, boss. Mm-mm, boss, wasn't me. It must have been some other body. Uh-uh, boss, wasn't me. It's been about a year now when we got word that this strange virus, possibly from China, made its way to the U.S. The first signs of it in America was, I believe, in Washington State. In shockingly quick order, it spread throughout the country, and the deaths kept piling up, going from single digits to hundreds to thousands, even though we washed our hands and wore our masks and kept our distance. One of the heroes of those early days was the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, whose daily news conferences were filled with just that, news, 
compared to what we were hearing from the White House, which was mostly propaganda led by a man who dismissed the severity of the pandemic from day one. Cuomo was an interesting case, best known perhaps for his reputation as a bully who intimidated friends, foes, and the media alike. His briefings became must-see TV, watched by millions. People by the droves were calling themselves Cuomosexuals. Some were trying to figure out if it weren't too late to push Biden and Bernie out of the race and Cuomo into the race. But when asked in a TV interview by intrepid CNN reporter Chris Cuomo whether the Gov was planning to run for president, the answer was no. Here's the scintillating interview. Are you thinking about running for president? Tell the audience. No. No. No, you won't answer? No, I answered. The answer is no. No, you're not thinking about it? Sometimes it's one word. I said no. Have you thought about it? No. Are you open to thinking about it? No. Might you think about it at some point? No. How can you know what you might think about at some point right now? Because I know what I might think about and what I won't think about. The ethics of a journalist brother interviewing a governor brother was asked back then in March of 2020, but CNN was getting great ratings from the two of them, and so what's questionable ethics when there's great ratings? The fact is, however, that Andrew Cuomo was everything Donald Trump was not. And regardless of whether Cuomo's eyes were on the White House or not, in those scary days of March and April of 2020, he was seen as a beacon of truth and honesty and information that we weren't getting anywhere else. No longer was he Andrew the bully, he was, improbably, Andrew the comforter. How Cuomo must miss those days. He has gone, in the seeming blink of an eye, from champion and hero to someone fighting for his political life. It's no longer about a potential presidential run in 2024. It may no longer be about a potential fourth term as governor in 2022. It's, can he survive? Can he survive the news that three women and counting have come forward to say that he showed inappropriate sexual behavior towards them? Unwanted touches, inappropriate personal questions, unwanted kisses. Just a month ago, Cuomo was under the gun for apparently mishandling the situation involving the underreporting of deaths of patients in New York nursing homes. That story, once front-page stuff for the New York tabloids, has faded with these new allegations. This new story shows no sign of going away anytime soon. Chris Churchill is a political columnist at the Albany Times Union and has been following the story. Chris, welcome to The Political Junkie. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you are here because, you know, you know, I've been in this news business long enough that I know that surprises do happen. But the thought of of Andrew Cuomo, you know, plotting a fourth term and and being heralded as the savior of truth and justice and information. And the next he's fending off demands that he resigned. It, it's it's been inc- an incredible year. It really has. It really has. I mean, I'm not. From an Albany perspective, I'm not sure what's more surprising, the fact that he was that he became this national figure for for a period. I mean, you know, those people who follow New York politics closely considered the governor to be I mean, he was obviously a very powerful governor, an authoritative governor, um, but not someone who really connected with people on an emotional level, not somebody who really inspired passion the way some some politicians do. So when those daily briefings took off the way that they did, it was like, whoa, this is a, we're seeing a side of the governor we haven't seen before. And it was, it was remarkable. I mean, it, it was really remarkable the way that um, the country responded to what he was saying. And I, I you know, I think he, he, he did, to his credit, he did step up during a very difficult moment and, um, and showed a different side of himself. But, you know, we're a long way from, well, we're a long way from that now. The fact that he was comforting us had to be surreal for you guys who have been covering him for so long. Yeah, I mean, empathy and Andrew Cuomo were not words that usually went together. You know, he was his reputation was always, like you said, the bully, the hard, the hard knuckled politician, the arm twister. I mean, those are kind words for for the way he was described a lot of the times. 
But, you know, he seemed to rise to the moment. And, and you know, of course, this is all because there was a void in Washington, right? I mean, Andrew Cuomo, I don't think, would have risen up to, to, to be this kind of spokesperson of the pandemic if, it hadn't, if Donald Trump had, been, had handled it better, if, if he had shown some empathy, if, if he had been more forthcoming with information, if he had taken the virus seriously. So I think Trump has always been a really great foil for Andrew Cuomo. And I don't think that it's coincidental that he's struggling now, now that, now that Trump has left the stage. You know, I think there, there's kind of a direct correlation there. Well, of course, he's struggling because first one, then a second, now a third woman, uh, they've all come yeah. forward and accused him of, you know, inappropriate behavior. Well, how serious politically, I, I, even though we should be talking more than po- politics when it comes to inappropriate behavior towards women, but politically, how serious is this? You know, it's very hard to tell. And this, the situation is just changing so much day by day. I think he's not going to resign. I, it just it would be so out of character for him to resign. He, he said in Wednesday's press conference, the, the press conference in which he apologized, which, you know, in itself is a, a rarity for Andrew Cuomo. First, I fully support a woman's right to come forward. And I think it should be encouraged in every way. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. It was unintentional. And I truly and deeply apologize for it. I feel awful about it. And frankly, I am embarrassed by it. And that's not easy to say. But that's the truth. But this is what I want you to know. And I want you to know this from me directly. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I never knew at the time that I was making anyone feel uncomfortable. I never knew at the time I was making anyone feel uncomfortable. And I certainly never ever meant to offend anyone or hurt anyone or cause anyone any pain. That is the last thing I would ever want to do. I wasn't elected by politicians. I was elected by the people of the state of New York. Uh, I'm not going to resign. Uh, I work for the people of the state of New York. They elected me, and I'm going to serve the people of the state of New York. And by the way, we have a full plate. We have COVID. We have recovery. We have rebuilding. We have a teetering New York City. We have a terrible financial picture. We have to do vaccines. Uh, So, no. Um, uh, I'm going to do the job the people of the state elected me to do. The idea that he would resign was always just far-fetched to me. Um, he's just, that just would be so out of character for him. This is, I mean, this is a guy who, as far as we can tell, you know, this, the job is his life. It's everything to him. He, I, he doesn't seem to have a whole lot going on sometimes outside of work. I mean, work is everything to him. Uh, so I never really thought he would resign. But that said, you know, if more women come forward, you know, we we had three in pretty rapid secession there. If we if more women came forward, he might be forced to resign. And even if no more women do come forward, I, you still wonder, or I still wonder what his prospects for a fourth term would be. Which, of course, you know, three or four months ago, everyone would have assumed that he would just cakewalk to re-election. I think today that seems dubious. I suspect that a fourth term is. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, even though I play one on the radio, but I suspect that that a fourth term is extremely important to him, given the fact that his father, Mario Cuomo, tried for a fourth term in 1994 and was defeated. I just wonder how important a fourth term means to him. Yeah, I mean, every, that's always the, the kind of pop psychology that everyone assumes. 
I think you could almost see that in, in different ways, though. He, you know, he clearly loves and admires his dad, um, but also has a competitive relationship with his with his father. Um, part of me would say, well, maybe he wouldn't want to top his dad's achievement. Maybe you know he would he'd be happy to since he loves his dad so much just to, to kind of equal his three terms. But then there are then the competitive part that you know that maybe he yeah he would love to get the fourth term his his father never had. You know, fourth terms are difficult. To, to get obviously, and uh, you know it's with all that's all the baggage that he's carrying at this point. It's it's getting more and more difficult for him to achieve that fourth term. So I don't know. I don't know how that'll play. But you know, he has said he's running again. So as far as we know, nothing has changed. Well, one thing he may have in his favor, he's, 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 you know, in that press conference, he urged everybody don't jump to any conclusions or rush to judgment until Letitia James, the state attorney general, finishes her uh, investigation. That could take months. Yes. And, you know, that's that's a very interesting twist, too. But on the one hand, he's buying himself some time there and, and, and assumedly hoping that this all cools down a little bit. But it's important to remember that he was in a lot of hot water before the allegations of sexual harassment. I mean, the, there's been an ongoing scandal about his handling of, of nursing homes generally, but also his uh, cover-up of, of, you know, the, this is, gets into the weeds maybe a little bit, but New York State reported its nursing home deaths differently than other states, leading to kind of a dramatic undercount of the, of the toll in nursing homes here. And reporters and and others and some lawmakers have been asking for the full and accurate data for a long, long time, and the governor refused to release it. And then about a month ago, at the end of January, the governor was blindsided by a report from Attorney General Chris James noting that he had been undercounting, dramatically undercounting nursing home deaths. And that report was a really interesting moment. It really took Albany by surprise. I think it took the governor by surprise. He was reportedly furious about it and really pressured Tish James not to release it the way that she intended to release it. But it was really a watershed. It really seemed to change things for the governor in a lot of ways. And I think part of that is wrapped up in the idea that Tish James, people always assume that Tish James was a Cuomo ally. She had kind of come to office with his endorsement and kind of his approval. And the idea that a supposed Cuomo ally would go against him that way and kind of punch him in the gut that way really shocked Albany. And it, ever since then, it just seems like more and more people have been willing to come forward and tell what they say, what they want to say about Andrew Cuomo uh, without fear and without trepidation. Well, maybe with some trepidation, but without, <laughs> without as much fear as they would have felt, at, you know, a year ago at this time. Well, uh, Bill de Blasio, the New York City mayor, who obviously has never had a good relationship uh, with Cuomo. Matter of fact, yeah. I think I think there's a long history, maybe perhaps even going back to John Lindsay and Nelson Rockefeller, the relationship between New York City mayors and New York governors has never been good. But having said that, de Blasio was was asked what he thought about Cuomo's defense that, well, you know, um, I, I, whatever it is that I did, uh, it could have been misinterpreted and as unwanted flirtation, but I never meant any harm. And then when you add that to the nursing home, the nursing home deaths under reporting, as you pointed out. So de Blasio was asked about that. Here's what he said. That's not an apology. Um, he seemed to be saying, oh, I was just kidding around. You know, sexual harassment is not funny. It's serious. It has to be taken seriously. And, and he just clearly was letting himself off the hook um, for something that, for the women involved, sounded pretty terrifying. And uh, no, we need a full investigation. Um, We need the whole truth of what happened. We need to make sure it never happens again. And we need to look at the nursing home uh, issue. We cannot just look at one or the other. We need a full investigation of the nursing home issue where thousands of people died. Information was covered up on purpose. And we still don't know if our seniors are safe going forward, our elders. We don't know if they're safe because we have not got a full accounting of the facts. So both these issues need to be looked into independently, thoroughly, and we need to know what has to change as a result. I know a lot of uh, prominent Democrats like Senators Chuck Schumer and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand uh, are basically calling for a wait-and-see attitude, but are calling for an investigation. Have there been serious calls for resignation? 
Well, there have been. I mean, not not from political leaders here in Albany necessarily. The people who have called for Cuomo's resignation tend to be the people who just disagree with them on policy. I mean, you're, you're hearing it from Republicans, certainly, and from people like Elise Stefanik, who's the congresswoman, the Trump, very Trumpy congresswoman from the North Country here. And you're hearing it from the kind of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, a lot of New York City politicians. Um, you're not hearing it so much from the mainstream, certainly not from Schumer and, and Gillibrand, as you mentioned, but also not from, you know, the leader of the Assembly and the leader of the state Senate. But that could change. You know, they, they, I mean, it's one of the things that's been interesting about this is, you know, Governor Cuomo ruled kind of, you know, with an iron fist and he ruled by fear and intimidation. And, you know, that for whatever you may think of that, that kind of style of governing, one thing that's true is that it doesn't leave you with a lot of friends necessarily. You know, the people who are with you are with you transactionally or they're with you because they fear you. And I think when that fear dissipates, it became really obvious over the weekend when these uh, sexual harassment allegations really started to intensify. But the governor doesn't have that many friends, that many people who really, um, and I'm talking politically, who were willing to stand by him. I mean, even the, the people who wouldn't necessarily, weren't calling for his resignation, weren't defending him very vociferously. You know, it was really obvious that there was this kind of void where he was just kind of out there on his own. And I think that's telling, you know. And and his tendency for intimidating his opponents, I mean, that goes away, too, now that he's so apologetic and, and filled with remorse. He's not the same Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you wonder, right? I mean, you know, that, that press conference on Wednesday raised as many questions as it answered. You know, he said that he now understands that his behavior is unacceptable, you know, he and he kind of suggested he's not going to behave that way going forward. And you know, he's talking about sexual harassment. But you know, this the, one of the women who who made the allegation, Charlotte Bennett, raised these concerns internally to Cuomo's chief of staff last summer. Right. So this, so presumably the governor has been aware of this stuff for, for quite some time. And so he's saying he's only now becoming aware that his behavior may have upset some people. You know. And the other thing is, does it does it change? Is he still going to be the bully that he that he has been? I mean, sexual harassment and the, the kind of political bullying he's famous for are two different things, but they are both similar in that they're they're related to abu- abusing your power. And you know, when you threaten someone's career, as he allegedly did with uh, one lawmaker, Ron Kim, a Queens assemblyman, and threatened to destroy people and and. and you know, take those sort of tactics. Those are abuses of power. And is, is that behavior going to change? I mean, that's, that's the kind of question I would love to hear him answer. And I guess the obvious question that I'm thinking of is what's next? But as I'm thinking of that question, how could I possibly ask you that question? How could you possibly answer that question, given the fact that this is such a fast-moving story? Yeah. I mean, if you if you had called me three months ago and we talked about Governor Cuomo, I would have told you, oh, he's going to roll the reelection, you know. He's still very popular. Yes, there are questions about nursing home data. That's been going on for a long time. Yes, it was very clear that he, for whatever reason, had decided he didn't want to release the full toll of nursing home deaths. And that's that's been, you know, in the background for quite some time now. But I still would have told you that he, he's unlikely to, to have a serious opponent in 2022. He's unlikely to really have to worry about being reelected. And, you know, that's all changed so quickly. So given that, it is hard to say, well, what's, what's, gonna, what's the situation going to be in a month or even a week or even a few days from now? I mean, we just don't know. We just don't know. And that Wednesday press conference, one of the little details that I thought was interesting is that he seemed to speak often in the plural. You know, he said women and they, and he's only really acknowledged that one of the women has a legitimate claim at least one of the women who worked for him. So it almost seemed like his, his constant use, use of, of, of plurals made it seem like he's leaving open the possibility that, that other women may come forward with, with similar complaints and kind of preparing us for that a little bit. My goodness, this podcast may be outdated by the time it goes up. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can call me back. Chris Churchill is a political columnist at the Albany Times Union. Chris, it's great having you on the program. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me.
Madison Cawthorn is often described as one of the leading new faces of the GOP, a young rising star. A freshman congressman from North Carolina, he was the victim of a horrific car accident in 2014 when he was 18. It left him partially paralyzed and in need of a wheelchair. During last summer's virtual Republican convention, Cawthorn wheeled onto the stage. Towards the end of his speech, with the help of two men, he steadied himself up onto a walker. You can kneel before God, but stand for our flag. The American idea my ancestors fought for during the Revolutionary War is just as exciting and revolutionary today as it was 250 years ago. I say to Americans who love our country, young and old, be a radical for freedom, be a radical for liberty, and be a radical for our republic, for which I stand, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, and may God bless America. In fact, for obvious reasons, Cawthorn's go-to word in his short political career is stand. This was one of his commercials from last year's election. You see him wheeling himself across a football field. Are you tired of politicians who stand for nothing? You vote for these people to stand up for you. But when was the last time you saw a politician take a stand on anything? And then, as he did at the GOP convention, he dramatically lifted himself out of his wheelchair. Our entrenched political class doesn't stand. They kneel. They kneel to the violent mob. They kneel to socialism. To be born an American is a gift from God. Living under this flag is a blessing no matter who you are or where you come from. I will never ever disrespect it. I am proud to be an American, and because I am proud, I stand. His is a wonderful and inspiring story. Or is it? You'd never know this if your source of information was the Fox News Channel, but Cawthorn's entire history, including the car accident, is in somewhat of a dispute, according to those who are following his career. And there are numerous accusations of him as a sexual predator. The complaints, which aired even during the campaign, is going ignored by Fox News and other Republicans, even as they ramp up their demand for the resignation of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Tom Fiedler has been following all of this for quite some time. The former Miami Herald reporter who famously outed Gary Hart in 1987, he later became the dean of the Boston University College of Communications. Afterwards, he and his family settled in Asheville, a city in western North Carolina, which is part of the 11th Congressional District, now represented by Cawthorn. Tom, welcome back to The Political Junkie. No, glad to be here, Ken. Well, you know, when, when you were last on this show, you know, we talked about Gary Hart and, and the character flaws that led him to self-destruct during his presidential campaign. Now the subject is Madison Cawthorn whose, I don't know, fairy tale political rhyme seems to have been shot with holes. Well, perhaps that's where uh, the similarity uh, can be drawn. Um, in, in many ways, what we have with Madison Cawthorn is um, this particular media generation's rising star, somebody who is, um, uh, whatever fame he is gathering, is being done, as being told on social media, all different aspects of it. And he plays to that. Um, just as with Gary Hart, I think what made uh, the Gary Hart scandal um, as high visibility as it was, is that that occurred at uh, the dawn of the cable television and the uh, tabloid news era. So um, even though we're almost two generations apart, I think that there's some similarities there in terms of the way stories like these can uh, suddenly become rather explosive and, um, you know, uh, um, nationally and internationally prominent. Tell us who Madison Cawthorn is. Madison Cawthorn is, um, he's a young man. Uh, I think in many ways uh, he's charming, uh, certainly handsome. 
uh, grew up in uh, the town of Hendersonville in the mountains of North Carolina. He was homeschooled, his uh, family uh, deeply religious, uh, and um, I think enjoyed in many ways a um, childhood that uh, was privileged, a very wealthy family. Uh, he uh, he uh, excelled in sports um, and I think in many ways was on his way toward what would be a you know, very successful um, uh, young youth and career. Uh, uh, he, a centerpiece of that was his desire to go into the military, the Marine Corps specifically. Uh, and he, uh, as part of that, had applied to Annapolis. He applied to the local congressman, who at the time was Mark Meadows, as um, I'm sure the listeners know, uh, went on to become the chief of staff under uh, President Trump. So he applied um, to Mark Meadows for a nomination to the Naval Academy to Annapolis. Uh, and um, I think, uh, uh, you know, we're probably in contention for that. However, during the spring of what would have been a senior year in high school, uh, he and his good friend uh, took a, a trip down to Florida. And uh, on the way back, driving back, the uh, friend, a man named uh, Brad Ledford, uh, apparently fell asleep at the wheel. They lost control of the car. Messon Cawthorn was sitting in the passenger seat. The car veered off uh, the interstate, uh, hit a an abutment um, near Daytona Beach, Florida, and um, Madison Cawthorn was severely injured in that uh, accident. And as a result, as you mentioned earlier, um, and uh, is now must use a, a wheelchair to get around. Um, that he um, nonetheless, I think he he um, uh, rather uh, I think ambitious a young man to his credit, and he uh, determined that he was going to go forward and um, pursue a career in politics. Well, uh, let, let me stop you. Let me stop yeah. you here before we get to the political career. Uh, let me just go back because it just seems like, again, a fairy tale story and perhaps great redemption and things like that. But then. When you when you do some digging, some de- looking for details, you find a completely different story. You know, in the past, for example, when he spoke of his car accident, he said the driver, you mentioned Brad Ledford, um, had fled the scene and left him to die, even though Ledford later said it was he who pulled Cawthorn uh, out from the wreckage. Um, Cawthorn said that the accident ended his chances of attending the Naval Academy, but then he later admitted that he was rejected before the accident even occurred. So that's just two, I mean, just two of his many, many discrepancies. Right. Well, in many ways, that's the puzzle of Madison Cawthorn, because it uh, it seemed that uh, he has a proclivity to either uh, stretch the facts, stretch the truth, or to reach uh, directly for um, a lie uh, in order for self-aggrandizement. And I think what's puzzling is that uh, so much of this wasn't necessary. I mean, I, I think uh, one could make the case that he could have been successful in what his dreams were uh, without resorting to that. But just to uh, pick up on what you were saying, what uh, he did claim um, uh, later that uh, his friend Brad left him um, in a fiery car um, almost uh, to certain death, and um, uh, it was only because some other passersby pulled him out that he survived. Um, As it turned out, um, he had uh, admitted in under oath in testimony in a lawsuit about that accident that um, it was Brad Ledford who actually pulled him out. And the uh, uh, Madison Cawthorn's uh, parents uh, told the local media that they felt that uh, they owed their son's life and survival to Brad Ledford. So there was this puzzling and unnecessary statement. And going back to the Annapolis appointment, uh, he had been nominated, but a nomination is only the first step in a and a strenuous process to get in a service academy. He had been actually rejected by the Naval Academy, and he knew that before the accident. Yet, when he was running for the congressional seat, he made his um, appointment as he made it sound like he was on the path to go to Annapolis and pursue this dream of his. 
um, were it not for the accident. And it was only because of testimony in that lawsuit that it came out that uh, he knew at the time he had been rejected. So this is, and there are so many aspects of um, now Congressman Cawthorn's story that um, where what could have been, I think, um, a reasonable uh, statement of the fact he has either embellished or twisted entirely to create this narrative that, uh, you know, is clearly and uh, demonstrably false. Okay, so you mentioned you you mentioned that both the the accident and the the rejection by the Naval Academy. Those are lies that didn't have to happen, like unnecessary lies. But also, to add to this saga, some 150 former students came forward, and this was during the campaign, came forward to accuse him of sexual harassment. And, Correct. And that's, I mean, that's not a, you know, he, he just, sure, he denied it, but that's a lot of people, 150 people coming forward to, to say that. And this is during the campaign also, during the campaign, I mean, I'm just overwhelmed with the story. He visited Adolf Hitler's vacation home because it was on his bucket list, and he referred to Hitler as the Fuhrer. So voters, I think he, by then he had already had the Republican nomination, but still voters had this information when they went to the polls in 2020. Yeah, they they did that and uh, and more. Just not to pile on, but a couple of other things that I think were interesting is that uh, uh, he he was very uh, open in using symbols that many people associate with either white nationalism, white supremacy, or anti-Semitism. For instance, um, he he opened up a real estate uh, investment firm. Doesn't really do business, but he opened it up, and he gave it the initials SPQR. Um, that is, um, those are initials from the uh, Roman era uh, that many white supremacists uh, have embraced uh, as their own code. He also um, wore, uh, he, he, he's a very strong Second Amendment person, and um, he used in his campaign a photograph of him um, carrying an automatic weapon and wearing a bandolier. And on the bandolier was the symbol, the Spartan helmet. That is used by the uh, Oath Keepers, which, as we now know in the aftermath of January 6th, is uh, uh, a uh, considered um, a, a terrorist or a militia group. So there are a lot of other things that were there and that were reported on, but that apparently had uh, you know no impact, at least uh, discernibly, on the outcome of the election. And here's another one. He apparently lied about his employment history, saying he uh, worked for Congressman Meadows, but as it turned out, what, he was in an intern for like 15 minutes, right? Well, it was a little bit, about a year and a half, he was an intern in the office. Uh, but he did say uh, that, that he was a, essentially a full-time employee in the congressional office when that was certainly not the case. Uh, his only full-time employment uh, was as... Uh, a shift manager at a Chick-fil-A in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. The reason I sound astounded by this story, and I really am, it's not, you know, it's not fake, it's real. And the reason I am is because this guy is, you know, accepted as, described as a, a bright rising new star, and yet there are so many blemishes. Look, I know that we knew a lot about Donald Trump and and we elected him anyway in 2016, but... What is it about the voters in North Carolina 11? I mean, sure, they're conservative and sure they'll vote for Republicans, but with so many strikes against him, with so much damage, damaged goods and damaging information and 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 those I mean, whatever happened to those 150 women who uh, I mean, so that's it's all out there. And yet he wins and he wins big. Well, I think the explanation for that is probably the same explanation we give as to why uh, 74 million uh, people voted for Donald Trump for re-election, knowing all uh, many of the similar kinds of things there is once um, Madison Cawthorn was in the general election in this particular district, it um, I think it became, uh, uh, in, in many ways, it was just that the tribal instinct that Republicans were going to support Republicans, this district... Uh, um, lean strongly Republican, and um, 
Uh, and the stories that were written about Madison Cawthorn were in many ways just dismissed by many of these Republicans in the same way that the stories about uh, Donald Trump are dismissed. This is uh, mainstream media that's uh, doing this. It's fake news and uh, that uh, it, it, it just simply bounces off. I, I think that's the only explanation now, Ken, whether this will persist um, throughout the next uh, what remains of a two-year term, we don't know. But um, uh, I believe in the run-up to that election, it just uh, it was, well, let's give the young man a chance, seemed to be the attitude. And there is a sympathy vote for him. There was this sense that the young man went through a very tragic situation. So, you know, uh, we want to see him do well. We would like to see this fairy tale story go on, and I think that that uh, was was a factor also. I, I hate to me- mention this because we both know that on your tombstone, the words Gary Hart is going to be on the, the tombstone. But, but God help me, <laughs> God help all of us. But you know, when you when you did that expose about Hart in, in 1987, that ultimately crashed his presidential dreams, you know, you, everybody in the world or every, certainly everybody in the country, everybody in the political world heard you. Now you were reporting all this stuff about Madison Cawthorn in the fall. People heard you, but, but what? But, well, I think the, the, the big difference between what the, uh, uh, the media ecosystem was in 1987 and what it is today is that there was not the uh, alternative uh, ecosystem that people could go into. And now with social media as it is, that uh, I'm sure the people who wanted to believe or support Madison Cawthorn, just as those people who want to support Donald Trump, they can find their own place to go to find affirmation for the beliefs that they have. Uh, That didn't exist in 1987. Virtually all the media, whether it was the tabloids, whether it was the cables, uh, or the then much smaller mainstream media, they essentially carried the same facts of the story. And um, I think ultimately that's, uh, that's how people responded. Right now we do have, we're in a universe where people can come up with uh, their own, they can find their own facts. And uh, I think as you mentioned in, earlier in the, in the intro, you're not going to find these derogatory issues in the uh, right-wing uh, media sphere. You're not going to see it on Fox News. You're not going to see it in OANN and any of those places where Madison Cawthorn is frequently invited to speak. And he, um, you know, he speaks to his supporters uh, no longer on Facebook or Twitter because um, they censor issues, falsehoods and so forth, or at least they threaten to. Um, So he has now pulled all of his supporters over to Telegram. And if you go on to Madison Cawthorn's chat channel on Telegram, it is absolutely outrageous with the anti-Semitism, the uh, racism, um, the the QAnon stuff. And that's where he is deriving his support. And again, whether that will carry on for the next two years or so um, is yet to be seen. But uh, that's that's how he stays afloat. Have you did during the campaign? Did you speak to him at all? Did he? Did you try to reach out to him? Have you spoken to him since he was elected? During the campaign, I did speak to him. Of course, at that point, he had no reason, I think, to be uh, fearful, perhaps, or wary. Better word um, of what uh, what the media might do. I spoke to him a few times um, during the Republican primary, particularly, and then immediately after. But after the first story I did that uh, raised issues about his, um, I think, affinity for white nationalism, um, uh, white supremacy, uh, from that point on, uh, he has never spoken to me um, other than to get a one or two sentence statement. Uh, I have to work through his press secretary, and uh, again, uh, that uh, is extremely filtered. I'm trying to think. For first of all, as we pointed out, this is a, a leaning uh, re- a Republican district. This was Mark Meadows' old district. I would think that if he's going to be denied a long stay in Congress, it'll come in the Republican primary. But that may not happen either. First of all, has any Republican 
announced any concerns, any uh, anybody standing up saying I might run against him, or is he still too much of a darling? No, surprisingly, uh, I think somewhat surprisingly, there have been uh, concerns raised by uh, by Republicans. Uh, one, for instance, is the the state senator whose district, in many ways, um, overlaps the congressional district, a senator by the name of Chuck Edwards, and he has raised concerns about the uh, uh, affinity that Madison Cawthorn has shown for these extremist groups. A former sheriff of uh, Henderson County, which is Hendersonville, and it's the second largest county in this congressional district after the one where Asheville is, um, he, he has said publicly that he regrets having endorsed and supported Madison Cawthorn because of what is now going on. So I think uh, we could see uh, a, a strong and credible Republican challenge uh, coming up to him uh, you know, very soon. And certainly the Democrats are <clears throat> saving string on him and they're ready to leap. Well, Tom Fiedler is an independent journalist in Asheville, North Carolina, which followed a long career at the Miami Herald and then the dean at the Boston University College of Communications. Tom, it's a troubling story. Thank you so much for being on top of it. Oh, it's my pleasure to chat again, Ken. When the truth is found to be Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the election and stay in power, long a favorite tactic of South American despots, failed. But polls show his grip on the Republican Party is as strong as ever. He had a post-impeachment coming out party last weekend at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, held in Orlando. It took place in Florida because the usual venue, the National Harbor in Maryland, was ruled out due to COVID-19 restrictions. No stinking restrictions for CPAC. His speech was vintage Trump, filled with conspiracy theories and lies about the election. No Trump speech is without grievances and resentment. But it was also a declaration of war against the Republicans who voted in the House to impeach him and those who voted in the Senate to convict him. Tim Denevy covered the conference in Orlando. He's an assistant professor at George Mason University and the author of Freak Kingdom, Hunter S. Thompson's Crusade Against American Fascism. Tim, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me on. In years past, I had covered my fair share of CPACs, and I always had fun, as nutty as it could sometimes be. But back then, I think it was comparatively mainstream. I mean, they endorsed Mitt Romney in 2012. I mean, that's a perfect example. But CPAC under Trump seems to be a different animal completely. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. You know, I've been there since... 2017 attending, and I've watched it move toward the unreality and the world of, um, you know, conspiracy and uh, irrelevant fact that Donald Trump lives in and has tried to impose upon so many of us over these last four years. But this year, I just can't tell you what it was like to see conference goers arguing with people that work at at the hotel over having to wear masks or, you know, telling right to my face, you know, at a bar, um, that uh, like QAnon isn't even the, the, the main conspiracy theory. That's just a psyop that, you know, actually um, communists have been embedded for the government in the government for the past 30 years. And even the, um, you know, kind of crazy and um, long since debunked arguments and confusions over voter fraud are, are just so front and center. Um, I was taken aback, even though I knew going in um, that it was going to be more extreme. Than other years, and that's before all the protesters started to gather on Saturday and Sunday. So that basically the entire weekend was a long series of honking horns and people screaming "America first" from you know below the balcony from where I was staying. You had written uh, one of those uh, vignettes about wearing masks at the conference. Could you repeat that story? I love it. Yeah, you know, I'm walking in and uh, there's everybody at the at the Hyatt has to has to wear masks when they're inside and. I had an N95 um, 
that I have on. And, you know, it's, it's a res- not just a respectful thing to do. It's, it's the rules for there. And you don't have to wear one if you're eating or drinking. And, you know, as I'm walking in, this is the first time there's a woman. She was dressed all in beige from head to toe. She had her husband uh, next to her. who was kind of glumly looking at the floor. And she was stopped by um, one of the security guards of the conference itself, um, who reminded her that she needed to wear her mask. And she was so angry. She looked at him and she said, look, I'm drinking right now. I don't have to wear it. She grabbed a you know, water bottle out of her husband's hand and just kind of mimed it to her mouth, staring at the security guard as she continued on, not having to wear a mask. And I mean, this woman's probably in her 70s. I, I just couldn't believe the people I saw there. I hope you didn't tell them that uh, Joe Biden was president. I mean, it was, you know, I understand illegitimacy. I, I was, I'm a big fan of the, um, I've written a lot about the 60s political process. I'm going to way back up. I was listening to um, Lyndon Johnson's uh, direct address to Congress. It's from Robert Caro after uh, the biography, after John F. Kennedy was shot, and how you know both sides were coming together, and he was able to move legislation um, through it. And it just struck me that if John F. Kennedy were killed today, there would immediately be 30 to 40 percent of the populace and most of the Republican Party saying he was killed because he was an alien, you know, or he was killed because he deserved it. And he doesn't get the sympathy that even a normal human being would um, feel at a moment like this. Or he, and, or he wasn't killed at all, and he's hiding and is about to come out at a certain uh, moment in, when history, you know, when it's right, right for history. From the bottom of the sea with his son, who's now <laughs> centered to the QAnon conspiracy. But they can dismiss anything. I, I mean, I, you know, it just absolutely blows my mind that for every single logical or a uh, point that's disadvantageous to them, they have a way immediately within their ecosystem, within their booths of podcasts and One American News Network and Newsmax anchors to dismiss and delegitimize um, everything surrounding that point. And, you know, from Joe Biden's illegitimacy as president to the belief that the Capitol insurrectionists um, are, are, should be freed immediately and did nothing wrong. Um, the argument is that they walked in. There was nobody there to keep them out. It's the government's fault. It, it, you know, it's a terrible thing to take these nonviolent um, protesters and to punish them this way. It, it, it's a bizarre world that, at least I think in the past, um, when we had extremism like this, you could talk to the people about it. They would talk back to you. Now it's as if they're red-pilling themselves every day in an even uh, more extreme manner. And I, I, I got to tell you, it was... It was a rough. It was a rough four days. Tell me, tell me your reaction when you saw that gold statue of Donald Trump. I mean, that probably said it all. Well, I mean, I snuck in after about seven p.m. I had my Joan Didion bag that I really wanted to hang on him to take a picture with, and I was walking through the kind of um, this, this room where they have a lot of uh, things for sale. There's nobody there at all, and um, I found it, you know, and I, I just it was so. There's no sense of humor anymore in that this is a statue that's obscenely golden. It's in sandals. It's in American flag shorts. It has a goddamn wand, which I have no idea what that's supposed to mean or connote. Um, and, and it looks like, you know, obviously a cartoon life-size version of Trump. And it's just standing there. And so I went and I took a picture of um, it um, with the uh, holding the Joan Didion bag, which I put on on Twitter. And, and uh, you know, someone came up to me and I thought he was going to be like, I'm security. You can't do this. And I was going to be like, oh, Joan Didion is my favorite conservative writer. I'm not allowed to do this. But instead, it was a state, a state senator from, uh, from Kansas who then asked me if I would take a picture of him with the golden doll. He had come in after hours, too to see it, but for much different reasons. You know, it's times like this. I wonder what Cecil B. DeMille would have said about that. (laughs) And the people sinned a great sin, for they had made them a god of gold. And they bore him upon their shoulders and rejoiced, saying, This be our god, O Israel. Well, yeah, it wasn't just that they brought in, you know, the golden... um, half for all of us to, in my, uh, one of my favorite movies, Ten Commandments style, uh, you know, um, worship, it's that they were so deeply offended at CPAC that the left was making fun of that golden calf reference in, in a specific way. Um, I, I, I saw multiple people at the conference say, I'm the conservative. How dare they quote an Old Testament passage to me about idolatry? 
And it's, it's so mind-blowing because it's not even just the passage in um, the Ten Commandments that's absurd. I mean, The Simpsons has made fun of that you know, ridiculously again and again. Like, we've made a golden calf of this, and then they cut to all the uh, characters throwing the confetti in the air and worshiping it. Worshiping it. And so the, the person that I saw, his name was Matt Brainerd, and he's a, um, a, a sponsor for Looking Ahead America. He was the one, he's a sponsor of CPAC, and he runs the Looking Ahead America um, um, fundraising foundation, and he's the one who brought it in, commissioned the artist, and he introduced Marjorie Taylor Greene at her kind of off-the-books event at CPAC, and his inability to understand or his ability to dismiss any amount of irony attached to what was going on, um, again, I think that that gets at that closed uh, circuit system that the right has employed where, where irony isn't just um, irrelevant. It's been made non-existent. You know, it, it, there's no context for it anymore. Let me move on a little bit um, beyond uh, Trump for a second, because I saw that there were a bunch of 2024 hopefuls who were also there. Uh, Ted Cruz, Ron, I have a list here. Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, Josh Hawley, Mike Pompeo, Rick Scott, Christy Nome, Tom Cotton. I mean, did anyone stand out to you? Everybody's talking about whether Trump runs again in 2024. But did anybody else stand out, do you think? I think that's a... That's a really good question that, within the context of, to me, what CPAC has become kind of gets lost in the general media conversation. There's the way we see CPAC watching it, you know, um, <clears throat> on Fox News or on the Internet or through the highlights that we see on, on CNN. Um, but all of those candidates, everybody you mentioned, what they did after their speeches is they walked through the media row and they talked to the, the people in the bubble again and again and again um, who were reinforcing their message and who were making their unreality, um, you know, even more secure. And it's hard for me to respond to who can outdo what Trump has already done. I don't think any of those candidates can. You know, I, I think we're in a, in a completely new reality of, of not just a cult of personality, but a cult of deeply American salesmanship. Um, and in that sense, one of the most terrifying sights I saw was, um, you know, watching Don Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle uh, work that media carol, going you know um, podcast to podcast, uh, booth to booth, and talking about cancel culture and talking about outrage, um, talking about guns, and he was the only person there that really seemed to embody and capture the kind of manic and deeply dangerously absurd contradictions that um, you know Trump ha- has brought like a like a whirlwind onto the scene. Um, in his takeover of the Republican Party in the last five years. I mean, we saw Ted Cruz's joke. You know, like, he doesn't gain any points for making fun of himself. There's a, People groaned, you know, like, that wasn't necessarily received as, oh, Ted Cruz, that's who I'm looking for. Ted Cruz, you know, occupied, as you know, like a, a very specific and attractive spot on the right before Donald Trump came onto the stage. You would think there'd be a contrast, right, um, between, you know, Cruz's foe, like, um, you know, Christian um, righteousness and Donald Trump's bombastic New York nature, but they really occupy the same space of, of unreality. And in that space, Cruz just seems like a less talented salesman. <laughs> he seems like a less capable version of a huckster. Um, and that being said, you know, I, unless the party turns towards someone like um, Haley, you know, like Nikki Haley, I, I, I can't see someone like Josh, Josh Hawley out trumping Trump. They, they, they don't, almost have the, um, you know, manic snake oil salesman um, energy to do it. it. It reminds me more of, you know, the Billy Graham days. It, it, and, and all of that being said, I think the, down the line that it's Donald Trump Jr. as the person that to that crowd is far and away the most appealing um, and far and away could make the quickest jump to um, taking over that what? Was it 80, 60, 65% of the conference growers' straw poll for, for Donald Trump? Yeah, 68%. Well, you, met, you mentioned Nikki Haley, but also she wasn't there, and neither was Mike Pence. And no. Mike Pence was the ultimate loyal vice president for four years. I mean, that's, there's no way out of it. It, it. You can go as close to Trump as you want. You can break from him or try to, you know, as Haley has at times tried to do if you want. And the orbit and, 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 the, and the, the world that he inhabits it taints almost every single person that gets involved. Um, and I, that's why the only people that have really, in my view, escaped 
electorally are people who haven't even begun their careers yet, like Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka. Because besides that, uh, he just uses up anybody that's close to him. And everybody there is trying to use Trumpism and Trump still to sell their brand as a politician and to take up the space they feel that he's leaving behind. But it was really fascinating to see that the entire population of that conference has moved so far into his camp and his unreality that many of the politicians trying to reclaim it and making more and more exaggerated claims to, to, to occupy that space really just don't have the like, intuition or insanity to do so. I mean, out of everyone there, it was besides Donald Trump Jr., I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene seemed to um, articulate and speak to uh, the grievances that Trump had so... Um, you know, endlessly stoked in the past five years. I want to just play a little bit of Trump's speech. This is what one of the things that hit me the most is that uh, he gave, he gave this maybe minute or so little speech on on basically targeting his fellow Republicans who betrayed him in the past. And it seemed like he he showed more emotion attacking Republicans than he did Joe Biden. Let me play a little bit of that tape. The Democrats don't have grandstanders like Mitt Romney, Little Ben Sass, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey. And in the House, Tom Rice, South Carolina, Adam Kinzinger, Dan Newhouse, Anthony Gonzalez, that's another beauty. Fred Upton, Jamie Herrera Butler, Peter Meyer, John Katko, David Valadeo, and of course the warmonger, a person that loves seeing our troops fighting, Liz Cheney. How about that? The good news is in her state, she's been censured, and in her state, her poll numbers have dropped faster than any human being I've ever seen. Hopefully they'll get rid of her with the next election. Get rid of them all. I think one thing that I would say about CPAC that has been lost to in, in the media coverage is the desire for vengeance by the people there. And so when Trump, you know, speaks to what matters most to him and to the people that he feels have betrayed him that he had power over and shouldn't have, and he speaks about Liz Cheney and other Republicans, that is that really hits home with members of, uh, who are attending that conference because their sense of um, being wronged, their sense of vengeance, their sense that they deserve something that America has repeatedly failed to deliver to them, um, and their sense of unreality of that within context. You know, like, well, Trump wasn't president for four years. Did you get the reality that you wanted? That doesn't matter. He speaks so virulently um, when it comes to what he sees as the greatest and most unforgivable personal slights, that it's those moments, it makes sense that he's angrier at them in his worldview than he is at Joe Biden, that actually resonate um, in a terrifying way with his audience. And that's why this, you could just, for a long time, I felt that this party, which is a party that we need to function normally, has been pulling apart, as you can tell at the seams, but those are gone. You know, that it's already been pulled apart. And now it's just the people that are left receiving that vengeance and hatred. And they're going to be looking for somebody else to articulate it in the say what we want about Trump authentic way that he does. His, his vengeance, his hatred towards those politicians is authentic, as horrific as it is. You know, you, you said the word reality, and I was smiling because I was reading some of your previous accounts from previous CPACs, and I, I noticed that you got, you got into some shouting matches with some of the participants. Now, there's something both surreal and delicious in all that, like like as if arguing with them would change anything. And then I was thinking, while you were talking, I was thinking of the time when President George Bush, uh, back in 1992, when he was accused by the Democrats of avoiding debating Bill Clinton, Bush was followed around the campaign trail by a man, a guy dressed up as a chicken. And it was at one point, Bush found himself arguing with the chicken. I mean, I don't understand it. I think it was delicious. I don't understand what it would accomplish. But any memorable scuffles you had this weekend, last weekend? I mean, I mean that's the level of the discourse, it feels like. It's, it's, it's golden Trump and you. Um, I think this weekend, 
I was more afraid this weekend than I had been at past CPACs, not just because of, um, you know, it being in Florida instead of Maryland, which is at least a place like you and I know, you know, the National Harbor, um, but also because of the um, of the protesters and how, I mean, I was at the Capitol, you know, I was at, I was at a speech and I, I went the other direction and didn't go with all the crowd there. I was writing about it. And to see all those flags again, to see all of those same people um, kind of gathering outside of the hotel, I, I was, I was just reminded that they're looking for someone to hit. They're looking for someone to scream at and strike. But uh, I didn't have to flee from anybody this time around, which is very good. I didn't get stuck on the Breitbart yachts, which has happened in the past. Tim DeNevy is an assistant professor at George Mason University and the author of Freak Kingdom, Hunter S. Thompson's Crusade Against American Fascism. Tim, it was great having you on the program. Oh, fantastic to talk. They're coming to take me away, ha-ha. They're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha. To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time. And I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats. And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. And especially don't forget... The store is stocked with Political Junkie t-shirts and Political Junkie socks. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe, especially if you're in Texas, where there are no restrictions on anything, including common sense. I'll see you soon. Where life is beautiful all the time, and I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats, and they're coming to take me away. Home with trees and flowers and chirping birds and basket weavers who sit and smile and twiddle their thumbs and so